As you're taking your seat, you can grab your Bible and open up to Genesis 13. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some ushers at the front. They're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air, and we want to make sure a Bible gets across to you. Uh, we love the Word of God here in this church, and, um, and we're going to open God's Word, and we're going to study God's Word. And if, if this is your first time receiving a Bible, please just take this home with you. It's our gift for you today. And I just got to tell you, um, you know, sometimes after Easter... Um, you know, and just how, how awesome the celebration is and the praise, you know, kind of pastors oftentimes are like, well, I wonder what the next week's going to be like. You know, maybe it's not going to be quite as passionate, quite as high. Can I just tell you that that was just, that was like a repeat of Easter right there, uh, where we just got to pray. And by the way, that's what Sundays are. Do you realize that? Do you realize every Sunday is supposed to be a repeat of what we're celebrating every Easter? That's why it's on Sunday. <laughs> This is the day the Lord was raised back to life, and so we, we celebrate it with great passion and fervor. And I'll just tell you, you did not disappoint on my heart today. I'm, I'm so filled with, with faith and just with praise to God, and so thankful for you and the way that you have just poured your hearts out in praise to Him. We all have people that we've looked up to in our lives. Sometimes they're people we know well, and sometimes they're people we only see from a distance. We, we have heroes that we have looked at and aspired to be like. When I was a kid, I wanted to be like Mike, and I wasn't alone. There was a whole commercial about it, a bunch of them actually. I, I, I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. And I just, I, like, I was obsessed with Michael Jordan. I, I had the, you know, the Michael Jordan, Air Jordan poster on my wall, pictures framed, you know, a big tongue out. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the big Air Jordan. Like, I wanted an Air Jordan, like a, a Michael Jordan jersey so badly as a kid, and I couldn't afford one, so I settled for this blank, ugly Phoenix Sun jersey that I was able to buy really cheap. <laughs> And every time I put it on, I said, I hate Charles Barkley. I like Jordan. <laughs> there are certain aspects of our heroes that are worth emulating. Certain aspects certainly are not. And if you've seen the documentary about Michael Jordan, you know that to be true. There's much in his life that's not worthy of emulation. But I was always struck as a kid. I was, I was struck by the story of Michael Jordan. And one thing in particular stood out to me and I think heightened my appreciation for him. And it's, it's this. Michael Jordan did not make his high school basketball team the first time he tried out. And it always just stuck with me because... He didn't just quit when he didn't make it, but that failure in his life was actually formative in his life. It would have been easy for him just to, to give up and for his failure to crush him, but instead, it fueled him, and he became the greatest basketball player of all time. That is indisputable, by the way. Uh, LeBron cannot hold a candle to Michael Jordan, okay? Okay, kids? Amen. Amen. All right, that's good. At least we got one in today. But, but I want you to hear this. Listen, all of our heroes in, in this life, they've all had their fair share of major setbacks. Every one of them has had their fair share of failures, and usually it's a part of the story that actually makes them heroes. Hebrews 11 
is the chapter in the Bible that lays out for us Christians a list of heroes in the faith. It's the hall of faith. There's people that have been handpicked by the Spirit of God to be placed into this list as people we ought to look to as heroes in the faith. But what's really fascinating, if you were to read through the list, and I'd encourage you to do so, maybe even this afternoon, if you read through the list of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, there's one thing that you'll, you'll note is that every single one of them was a failure in some regard. Not one of them had perfect faith, but what you see is that every one of them had a resilient faith. An ability to fail or fall, but an ability to bounce back again and embrace or renew their faith in God. Their failure, in other words, was not the end of their story. And as you read through that list, there's one individual who stands, who towers above all the rest, and that is Abraham. We've been tracking through the story of Abraham in Genesis And we saw last week that he fell into great sin right after God had called him and made a promise to him of of a land, of offspring, and of blessing for the world. We see that Abraham falls into sin almost, it seems, immediately. And I think every one of us can relate to the story of Abraham, at least in some way. And I think, if I can just say it like this, I think the saddest part of of the Christian life is not failing to be faithful. That's just normal. The saddest part of the Christian life is failing to renew your faith when you've fallen. And I have watched this time and time again, and I've even experienced this in my own walk of faith. There have been times where I have fallen into sin, where I have failed miserably, and oftentimes I'm I'm slow to renew my faith. Instead, I wallow in my sin, or my sin is allowed to kind of percolate and spiral and compound, and sadly for many of us, listen, sometimes it can be a, a long period of time before we come back to the Lord. What makes someone a hero of the faith is that even when they fail, they renew their faith. And this is hard. It's hard for all of us because we all struggle so much with sin. We know the the guilt and the shame of sin, but this is necessary, listen, because every one of us fails. Every one of us falls. And maybe some of you here today are, are in a season where you've fallen. Maybe you've come face to face with your own sin. And I want you to hear today what Abraham is going to say to us. That doesn't have to be the end of your story. It doesn't have to define your story. This is why we must regularly renew our faith in the Lord. We all have the propensity to sin. We all fail and fall And regularly renewing our faith must become a reality for all those who walk with God. I want to show you three ways that we do this. Renewing your faith requires at least three things from this text. The first is this, that we return to our faithful God. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 13. Just follow along at verse 1. We'll read down to verse 7. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, who had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Here, we we see that Abram, we're reminded in chapter 12, remember Abram, if you look back to chapter 12, we saw that Abram actually went down in verse 10. It says, Abram went down into Egypt. By the way, that's intended to sound ominous. He's going down. And often when you think of going down, you're not going to a great place. And biblically speaking, there's a bit of a textual clue here that something bad is taking place. And we saw that what, what, what Abram did there was fail to trust God, fail to, to, to go to God. He simply made up his own mind without seeking the Lord, and he ends up going into this disastrous situation that in many ways is paralleling the situation of Israel in Egypt. But now, what we see in verse 13 is that he's going up from Egypt. We're kind of striking a, a different note. Something significant has taken place. There's a reversal going on here. He leaves Egypt with his wife who had essentially, remember when she was in Egypt, she was essentially enslaved in Egypt, sold to the harem of Pharaoh, or stolen, I should say, given by Abram into the harem of Pharaoh. And now here, she's been set free from captivity, and she's leaving Egypt with Abram, and notice they leave there with great spoils from the Egyptians. Here we we get another glimpse, by the way, of just how how faithful God is, even when we, his people, are unfaithful and faithless. The, The wealth that he leaves with is a sign that, listen, God's not finished with him. It is a sign of blessing upon him, even in spite of his sin. But here, his worldly wealth, while it's not wrong, as we're going to see, it's not of the most or utmost importance to him. Going into Egypt, what we see is that his mind was more set on earthly things, how he could fix his problems, his earthly problems, and it caused him really to abandon trust and faith in God. Now coming up out of Egypt, his mind has been reset on heavenly things. Abram is returning to his faithful God and ours. And and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 12, and I think it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how quickly we can move from faith to failure in the Christian life? It's amazing how we can be riding the highs of faith, doing so well, and then so quickly fall and stumble into sin. But, but I want you to notice this. It's even more important that we see how quickly we can move from failure to faith. In the Bible, the idea of returning, it's another word for Repent. It's the very same Hebrew word, in fact. So every time you hear the word return in the Bible, it's the the Hebrew word for repent. 
We've often described the word repent kind of like this, like you're walking on a path in a direction away from God, right? You're moving with your back to God, away from God. So you're walking in disobedience away from God, and then all of a sudden you stop and you turn around and you walk back to the God that you had previously walked away from. That's what repentance is, kind of in a, in a, kind of a picture form. And it's a fascinating thing that what we see taking place in the life of Abram is a literal returning, a walking back to where he once came from, where he was close to the Lord. I just want to draw out three ways that we we return to the Lord, to our faithful God together, just from Abram's example. Three ways. The first one is this, walk the old path. Walk the old path. There's a sense, listen, there's nothing new here, okay? Nothing new under the sun. The way back to God is essentially a reversal of the way away from God. Does that make sense? You're just simply turning back around and walking the path straight back to him. Abram literally in this passage here, he retraces his steps from the Negev to Bethel and to Ai. If you are with us in chapter 12, you know those are significant geographical points on the map that Abram moved from. Twice the narrative states that his return trip mirrored his earlier travels. One commentator puts it like this, that Abram should take such care indicated his desire to recover his experience with God. This path of reflection reflects Abram's genuine repentance and renewed faith. Every step that he had to take was time for him to consider how he had previously walked this path away from God in the exact opposite direction. He had time to consider along this walk back to God uh, the depth of his sin, what it had cost him. In chapter 12, remember? Remember how devastating it was that he didn't trust God, that he walked away from God? He put the, the plan of redemption from a human perspective. He had put the plan of redemption to where God was going to rescue the nations through his promised offspring. He put that all in jeopardy. But every step back to God was a reminder as well, listen, of the steadfast love, mercy, grace, and faithfulness of Yahweh God. I'll put this on the screen because I think it's helpful for, for us just to sit in this for a moment. This, this statement, returning to God, listen, listen church, returning to God requires a walk of shame as we remember our sin, but it turns into a walk of praise as we remember his grace. In the book of Isaiah, unfaithful Israel is being called to return to the Lord and God says to the prophet Isaiah in verse, chapter 44, verse 22, he says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. And then listen to this, return to me, he says, for I have redeemed you. It is, as Paul says in Romans, the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And if I was to give you just one practical step, if you find yourself in sin, you're like, well, how do I start walking this old path back to God? Let me just give you step one on this walk, okay? It's right here. Admit your sin. 
That's the first step. That's the first step of all repentance. That's the first step of returning to the Lord. Just admit your sin. All repentance begins by recognizing, listen, the seriousness of your sin and acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of God's saving grace. And sometimes our repentance, I believe, is, is not lasting repentance. Maybe I can say it like this, because I think Paul does. He says that our repentance is a, a worldly kind of sorrow. It's not a godly sorrow. In other words, it's, it's a, it gives, in a sense, the appearance of repentance, but it's not genuine repentance. It doesn't lead to the fruit of repentance, and I think we've all experienced that, haven't we? I have. I've had times in my life where I have seen my sin, and I, I've, I've repented to the Lord, and then I've quickly gone back to the very same sins. So have you. Amen? You sure? <laughs> we, we, we all have this tendency. Why, why do we do that? How, how do we move from this place of where we're, we're at least paying lip service to our sins to a place of committing those very sins, maybe moments later, maybe you know, hours later, whatever it is? How do we move so quickly? I think one of the reasons we move so quickly back into the very same sins that we've repented of is because we've not taken time to actually linger over our sin, to consider the seriousness of our sin. We move too quickly to forgiveness and grace. And listen, you, listen we love forgiveness and grace, amen? I, that's, like, that's the bedrock of our salvation. But, we, but listen, if we are inclined to run too quickly to it, here, here's, let me say it like this. Um, cheap sin leads to cheap grace. If, if your sin is cheap to you, if it's, not, if it's not that big of a deal to you, if you've not really thought about the weightiness of your sin, if, you're not, if you've not gone to the place like David where he says, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. If you've never gotten to the place where there's true brokenness over your sin, where, where you are pained in your heart because you know your sin is a direct assault against a holy, almighty God who is worthy of all honor, all all glory, all praise, and obedience, and you have fallen far short of that mark. If you've never allowed your sin to sit upon your heart until your heart breaks wide open with genuine repentance, then you've never known the true grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to learn to linger in our sin, hang on to that thought, at least for a bit, to walk this walk back to God with intentional reflection on both our sin and his grace. Because when we understand the seriousness of our sin, we can understand the amazingness of his grace. I love what Jeremiah 6.16 says. It says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Listen to this and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. And can I just say that part of finding this good path is repentance. It's obedience, yes, but, but realize, realize, listen, that in a fallen world, every one of us is going to struggle with sin, and so finding this good path involves actively finding repentance, and the result of that genuine repentance, isn't this awesome? It's rest for your soul. <laughs> 
I mean, how many of us are living so weary? How many of us are guilt-ridden in this place? How many of us have been living in shame and, and condemnation? Because, listen, we've never truly understood repentance, and we've never truly understand God's grace. We understand, in one sense, our sin, but we've never turned to see now that God, He loves us so much that He forgives our sins. This long way back to God, listen, is good for the soul. Don't rush this, church. If you've been struggling with being broken before the Lord, maybe this is for you today. Don't rush this process. But, but let me quickly hasten to add, don't stop and linger in your sin, okay? There's a no loitering sign on your sin. Here's what that means. You, you need to keep walking, okay? Don't stop. Don't stop. This is, a lot of us do this. A lot of us are actually experts at this. We, we are good at examining our sin, but it moves from a healthy examination of our sin into this morbid introspection where we get stuck in our sin and our selfishness, and we can't get our eyes off of ourselves and how awful we are onto the goodness and grace and faithfulness of God. That's not Okay. We need to keep moving. We see our sin. We think about our sin. We, we think about how much it costs. We, we think about how serious it is as we sinned against God. But as we keep moving, we need to move into a place where we find rest for our souls in his grace. That leads us to secondly, worship the old way. Walk the old path, the path of repentance, and then worship the old way. I want you to notice that we're, we're returning to God. Did you catch that in this passage? That Abram is, is actually got a destination in mind, and it's less about a place, more about a person. He's walking back on this intentional path, and he's walking so that he can specifically pause and worship God. It was for the purpose of worship that the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt. You remember that? You remember when Israel, like Abram and Sarah, had been in Egypt? Remember the parallels that we drew out? Do you remember when God called his people out of slavery? They'd been there for 400 years. God, he sends Moses and Aaron to go speak to Pharaoh, and they, they declare in front of Pharaoh, let my people go. But it wasn't just let them go. Do you remember what they were called to do? So that they might worship me. In fact, look at what Exodus chapter 3 verse 12 says. It says, he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now that word serve, listen, I want you to think of this synonymously as worship. Look at how uh, Peter, or excuse me, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 uses the same passage. He leans into, into Exodus chapter 3 and look at what he says. He said, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out, notice this, and worship in this place. And here's why I want you to see this, because to worship God, I think sometimes we're confused about what true worship is. We think that worship is simply singing songs to God, and I don't want to minimize that. We've, we've talked about that often in this church. Worship is, is, is one of the, the most important aspects of our worship, where we sing praise to our God, and it pours out of hearts that are filled with thankfulness and gratitude. But we know this. Worship is far more than, it's not less than singing, but it is far more than singing. 
And I, I might, might frame it like this for us, that it's not really about our singing, but rather our submission and our serving. Okay? That's what true worship is. It's about our submission to God as our king, as our God, and it's about our serving him. And now, to get out of your mind, kind of like waiting tables kind of serving, and think about it the way that Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 describes your life as an act of worship unto God, a spiritual act of worship. Where you are called, listen, not to be conformed to this world. Think about this. Don't be conformed to Egypt. Come out of Egypt and be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may test and approve what is right. It's your spiritual act of worship. A life surrendered in submission to God. A life that says, God, I will serve you wherever I am. My life is yours. Wherever I am, I live for you. Whatever I do, I do for you. That's worship. And verse 3 and 4 goes back to what he did earlier. You notice the language here? It's very intentional. The place where his tent had been, notice this, at the beginning. Verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar, notice this language, at the first. He's going back to the place of worship, the posture of worship, the person of worship. See, why is this so significant that, that God calls his people out of Egypt to worship him? Why is it so significant that God calls Abram out of Egypt to go back and worship him? Here's why. Because we worship our way into sin, we must worship our way out of sin. Turning your back on sin is good, but it's not enough. Turning your face to God in worship and surrender is transformative. It is only by gazing at the glory of the Lord that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's not just about stopping sinning. It's about actually gazing upon our Lord, His beauty and His holiness, and looking at it and saying, that's what I, I want. I want your presence. I want your power. I want to know you. I want to live with you. I want to walk with you. I want to walk for you. So he goes back to this place of worship, to the heart of worship, where it's all about God. There's a throwback for you. And an altar, listen, an altar, we've seen this, right, already. An altar was a place of worship, but it was, it was a place, what was that worship looking like? It was a place of sacrifice. And, and that, there's a centerpiece of worship. Notice this, in the Hebrew life and the Christian life is sacrifice. It is the place, listen, where an innocent, unblemished animal would be slain to make atonement, to pay for your sin. It was the place that was a perpetual reminder that, yes, we are great sinners, but God is a great Savior. Yes, we have great failures, but God offers great forgiveness. So what we see in Abram is he is renewing his faith by renewing his worship. He's saying, God, I'm yours. 
And for us, listen, we understand this. The sacrificial system is gone. We no longer bring an animal to an altar to sacrifice it to atone for our sins because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Amen? He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. We don't, we don't go to a place to worship God primarily. We go to a person, to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice who atones for our sins. So you see, renewing your faith is about regularly, listen church, this is so important, regularly renewing your worship. You realize that? Do you realize what we do every, why do we meet once a week? Why do we meet throughout the week? Part of the reason is this, we're renewing our faith. We're renewing our worship. We, we are here. We don't exist for ourselves. We are here. We are here being reminded that, that, yes, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Yes, there are many idols and many gods that we could pursue in this world, but we come under the one true living God of heaven and earth. We serve him. Every time we get together, this is what we're renewing our faith. We're reminding each other. We're singing it to one another. We're opening God's word. We're hearing it again. And it's so good for our souls because we're so easily, listen, led astray to wander in the world. It's why you should come every Sunday that you possibly can, okay? Not trying to be legalistic, and this, there's good reasons to miss church, I get it. But, and if you can't come to this church, you're like, well, I go on vacation. Fantastic, enjoy your time. Go to a church. Find a church. It's why you should be opening your Bible every day. Not trying to be legalistic, just trying to help you renew your faith. Why? Every day you open God's word, you're being reminded, I live for God. I want to know him. I want to glorify him. I want to worship him with my life. So if, if, if step one is admit your sin, let me say this, step two is ask for forgiveness. That's how you return to the Lord. That's a huge part of, of his worship that we see here and at the, we see it at the altar. He, he's, he's going to God and he is, he's asking for forgiveness. He's presenting sacrifice. That's what's taking place. He's saying, God, I know I've sinned and I know that you need to forgive me. You know, we often see people go missing from our fellowship, our church family. And it's, it's generally, not always, but it's, it's generally an indication that something is wrong. Oftentimes what we find out is that there's sin been, been going on in somebody's life. And they wander off into the wilderness and instead of coming home, like the prodigal, they stay a lot longer than they should eating the slop that was supposed to be reserved for the pigs. And I just, I want you to hear this, that the most important part of that story, the prodigal story, is the moment that he realized that his father would receive him back if he just simply turned around and, and went back in humility. And what did he find when he got to the end of that, that long path back where, where maybe he thought he'd just come into his father's house and say, like, what did he find? His father running to him, throwing his arms, kissing him, signet ring, robe. We're going to have a feast. Ask for forgiveness. You've been wandering from God. If you've been far away from God and you're like, I want to return to God, listen, admit your sin and then ask for forgiveness. Our God is a gracious God. Our God loves to forgive sin. Step three would be this, then appreciate the cross. 
One of the things that that I'm sure Abram appreciated is that God received his sacrifice. One of the things that we can appreciate living this side of the cross is that God has received. We celebrated this all last weekend, didn't we? God has received the sacrifice that atones for sin. The price has been paid in full. And so if you're moving through this kind of path back to God and returning to the Lord, then I think it's, it's appropriate to appreciate the cross, to look at the cross. When you've asked for forgiveness, you can look to the cross and say, God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus for me. Thank you that my sins have been nailed to the cross. We believe that Jesus has done this once for all by means of his own blood, as the author of Hebrews says, securing for us eternal redemption. Step four, then, would be this, accept his grace. And again, this is where a lot of people get stuck. We either run too quickly to grace and we don't spend enough time considering the seriousness of our sins so we never make progress in our sanctification and our spiritual growth or, or we never move away from our sin and sit and linger in the grace of the gospel. And this is where worship culminates. Grace, you realize, this grace is where worship culminates. Can you imagine how awful it would be coming in here trying to sing songs to God if we were not convinced of his grace? It'd be a painful ordeal. It'd be a lot less of you here every Sunday. But we know he's gracious, and so it's the culmination of our worship. It's the place, grace is, where shame dies. It's the place where legalism dies. It's the place where joy abounds. Because it's nothing you can do, it's everything that he has done. He died, he rose, he reigned, he deserves all glory and all praise for every part of our lives, which is why finally we wage the old war. And what we see here is that there's an event that takes place between Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, and Abram, particularly between their two uh, shepherds, those who are watching their flocks. It's fascinating that on the way back to the promised land where Abram's going to worship the Lord, we see that it's, it's not long after Abram's back that he faces another trial. You see, renewed faith is always followed by new opportunities to fall. Expect that struggles will remain and that God will strengthen you for the battles. And the old war here that we're waging really is the war of unbelief. It's the age-old battle that, that we are all inclined to unbelief, to not trust that God is good, that he'll do what he promises to do. It's, it's the age-old war on our pride, thinking that we know better, on our independence, that we don't need God, and on our selfishness. The strife here is going to provide an opportunity to see if Abram's repentance is real. It's setting us up to be able to see evidence of Abram's renewed faith. And it's interesting that trials often come into our lives in a similar way like they do here to Abram. Just notice this, again, like the famine that led him to Egypt, he encounters another problem involving a lack of food. We fight the same old battles over and over again in our Christian lives, don't we? But will it be different this time? Will will he move forward in his own strength or will he seek the Lord this time? 
Will he trust the Lord this time? Will he obey the Lord this time? And those all apply to us as well. Will it be different this time we face the same old trial, the same old temptation? Will we make changes in our life? And if we can look at it like this, step five in our returning to the Lord is this, that we advance his purposes. Instead of trying to advance our own purposes and do things our own way, we recommit ourselves to doing things God's way. We make God in obedience and his purposes our priority. So when that the war comes and the battle's raging, we can follow him. Secondly, renewing your faith requires that you resist your foolish greed. Look at verse 8 through 13. It says this, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That's Eden. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar, in the ancient Near East, Egypt was known as the breadbasket of the world. So he looks out and he sees lush abundance, everything he thinks he'll need to live a, a fruitful life here on this earth. And then it says this, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. That's not a good sign. Every time, almost every time in the book of Genesis, you read that they went east. It's another sign. They're moving away from Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. And here Lot is separating himself, truly separating himself from Abram. He is not a man who loves Yahweh God. He is not a man who cares to follow and honor the purposes of Yahweh God. He will do things his way. He will live for the world and in the world. And Abram is saying, that's fine. I'm going to choose differently. It says, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan where Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent. Notice this, it just goes from bad to worse. He's not just going east, look at this. He moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The strife between herdsmen lead to a discussion between Abram and Lot about separating And all you have to see here is that this is the language of decision that's being presented to both Abram and Lot. And I would say as a principle kind of flowing out of this text, I think we can see that when renewing our faith, we need to expect that God will continue testing our faith. And I would just say to you that you need to expect that it will often be where you are most prone to fail. Maybe your deepest struggle is with anger, impatience. You lack self-control in all areas of your life. Maybe you struggle immensely with with lust. Maybe you struggle with substance abuse. Maybe it's gossip or maybe it's slander. Whatever it is that you're most prone to struggle with, you'll find that God will often keep testing you in that area. Why does he keep kind of pinpointing the same things over and over? Well, have you ever, ever, any of you ever fail a driving test? Probably, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know in your heart who you are, okay? 
Well, what happens when you fail the driver's test? You take it again. What happens if you fail again? How many of you have failed multiple times? You can raise your hand for that because I'm really curious. I'm just <laughs> well, you, you keep taking the test until what? Until you pass the test. I know, it's so simple. And sometimes we look at our lives, we're like, God, why do we got to keep struggling with the same old sins? And God's like, because you refuse to find victory over the same old sins. And I said this last week, you know, we may struggle with the same sins for the rest of our lives. And I think that's, that's likely true for most of us. We all have some besetting sins, some issues in our life that, you know, we're more prone to struggle with. But I can tell you this, it is possible through the grace and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit of God that rose Christ from the dead is now living in you. It's possible, listen, for you to gain victory over the sins you've struggled with your whole life. Do you realize that? Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that's an awesome, awesome truth for us to grab a hold of. You don't have to be content to stay in those sins. And over time, through through constant grace-fueled effort, listen, grace is opposed to earning, not effort, okay? Through grace-fueled effort, you can find victory, triumph over sins that have plagued you your entire life. God can take the ashes, turn them into something beautiful. But he knows where your faith is weakest. And just again, as maybe a general principle, God will regularly place you in the position to have to choose this day whom you will serve. Regularly. Get used to this. God will regularly test you in this area. Who are you going to serve today? Which God is going to rule your heart today? Are you going to choose obedience or are you going to choose sin? Are you going to choose fear today or are you going to choose faith? The strife here produces the the context to choose faith. Listen. Listen. To choose faith over sight. Did you notice the contrast between Lot and Abram? Abram wants to preserve harmony and he demonstrates this extraordinary humility. But what he's really putting on full display for us to see is that he does truly have renewed faith. He is, again, trusting the Lord. He, he is, in this situation, this is amazing. Here's how you see the humility and faith of Abram. He's the older the elder in this relationship, right? Lot's his nephew. And especially, some of you come from honor-shame cultures. Well, the, the, you know, the Middle East, the ancient Near East, this is honor-shame culture. And so here's what that means. The elder always gets the preference, right? Some of you know this, right? You know this very well. He's older. He deserves the honor and the respect. So let me ask you this. Who should have had first choice of the land? Abram. And what does he do? He says, Lot, you choose. If you go this way, I'll go that way. If you go that way, I'll go this way. And you know what he's saying? Listen, what what is he risking in letting Lot choose? He's risking the fact that Lot could choose the promised land. Do you see that? But you know what he's saying? Even if Lot chooses the promised land, he believes God will be faithful to his promise and give him the land of promise. It's kind of like, do you remember Hebrew says when he takes his son Isaac up? We'll see this next year, I think. (laughs) When he takes him up, 
you know, to, to sacrifice his son Isaac. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says? He was going to sacrifice his son. Why? Because he believed that God could raise him from the dead. He believed God would be faithful. You can choose whatever you want. God's going to give me everything he said he would. He will not withhold one square inch of the land that he has promised. But Lot looks out, and what's he driven by? What he sees. And it's hard not to relate to Lot, right? I mean, sometimes the grass does look greener on the other side. And that's exactly what he looks out and he sees. The promised land doesn't look that appealing. So he looks at the land that's, that's kind of pushing on the, the border of the promised land. It's, it's, it's Sodom. Can I just say that just because it looks good doesn't mean it is good? We need to hear that. Our culture needs to hear that. Our hearts need to hear that. We can look out at all kinds of worldly things and think, this, is, this will be better for me. If I move here, everything will be better. No mortgage, lots of land. I'm preaching to some of your hearts right now, I know. It's okay. I'm preaching to some of mine too. <laughs> Oh, how nice would it be, slower pace of life. Yeah, and that, that may be true, by the way. But what if it costs you your spiritual life? What if there's no church family? What if there's no genuine Christian community? Are, are all, all the things the world has to offer more important than that? What, what does it profit a man, right? If he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul. That's interesting. I mean, I think so often we put our physical desires before our spiritual well-being. And you know, Jesus actually tells us to reverse that mentality. You know, if you read through Matthew chapter 6, he said, why are you anxious about all these things? And by the way, he's not talking about wants. He's talking about actual needs, like food, clothing, shelter, things you need to survive. If there's anything to be anxious about, it's not getting a bigger house. It's having a house. Not getting a better meal, but having a meal. And you know, Jesus says, why are you anxious about these things? Your, your Father in heaven, he clothes the birds of the field, the flowers of the field, the birds of the air. He, he, he gives them everything they need. You think he's going to leave you? And then he says that the best line in Matthew chapter 6 is this. You, you know, he says to you and to me, he says, seek first. Come on, church. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I, listen, you seek me. You seek my kingdom. You seek my righteousness. You put spiritual things in front of your face, and you go after those with every ounce of energy you have, and I will take care of everything else you could possibly need. So God calls his people to. And the irony here is amazing. What Lot chooses based on outward appearance will soon be consumed with fire because of the wrath of God. <laughs> and I want you to notice that Abram assumes that they're already aware of this event. He's like, hey, we all know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. I know what he's saying here. He's saying you can choose to be like Lot 
who doesn't trust the Lord and his course. And by the way, do you realize that there's, there's deep illusions here in Lot looking out and wanting to take for himself? The language is very similar to the language that's used in the book of, or sorry, in Genesis chapter 2, where Eve looks at the fruit. It's appealing to her eyes. And she turns her back on God and takes the fruit. It's another fall. And he's saying, you can choose to be like Lot. You can choose to turn your back on God. You can choose to be a quarrelsome like Lot and his men, fixed only on what you can see, but unaware of the dangers that lie ahead. You can be just consumed with the riches of this world and the plenty of this world and miss all that God wants to give to you in this life and the next. Or you can be like Abram who walks by faith and not by sight. And this requires, listen, that we resist our foolish greed for this world. This is, this is why we must resist. Like Lot looks out and he's greedy for what the world has to offer. He's willing to put himself and his family in jeopardy. He's willing to sacrifice his spiritual life. He's willing to sacrifice any relationship with God so he can get everything the world has to offer. And that's, listen, a temptation for every single one of us. Greed and covetousness lie in the heart of all of us. And while Abraham is full of renewed faith, we see he's renewed with a generosity. He lets Lot choose, and I love this. Uh, John Christostom, uh, a famous ancient commentator, he says, Lot chose according to his desire for riches rather than uprightness. Lot, in his foolish greed, chooses to dwell in the cities of the wicked rather than dwell in the land with the righteous. And the contrast couldn't be clearer between Abram and Lot. Lot is greedy, Abram is generous. By the way, generosity is such an amazing demonstration of your faith. You realize that? When you hold loosely onto the things of this world, what you're saying is, I trust God with everything in my life. Finally, renewing your faith requires that you remember your future guarantee. Verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, conveniently. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God reassures Abram, don't miss this, he reassures Abram of what he has already guaranteed him. He reaffirms and then he further defines the promise of land and people. And these verses, they continue to show this contrast between Abram and Lot. Earlier, Lot had been active, remember, in examining the land and taking what was the best for himself. And now the Lord instructs Abram to lift up his eyes and to look in every direction. And instead of taking, notice this, he is receiving from the Lord. 
everything that he saw would be his. Abram was waiting for God to give him the land. Lot took it. Abraham received it. It is better that God give it than that man take it. And here we see that Abram's faith has this future orientation to it. And I want you to see here, there's something special that takes place here. His faith, notice this, his faith actually becomes sight. At least in part. Did you catch that? He believes God will be faithful to his promise. And then what does God tell him to do? Go walk through the land. What he believes, now he can see. And he walks through the land, and what he's doing is he's symbolically, all, all commentators agree with this, he's symbolically, legally taking possession of the land. He's acknowledging what God says is true. And again, like we saw last, a couple weeks ago, it's as if it's as good as done. And he is demonstrating this renewed faith that it would one day be the rightful inheritance of his offspring. An offspring that will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. If you could count the dust of the earth, that's how many offspring he's going to have. By the way, we know there's not that many Jews on the planet. Who are Abram's offspring? Us. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, we are offspring by faith, Jews and Gentiles. And what does he do? He settles at Hebron by the great trees of Mamre, and there he built another altar for worship. You cannot escape this picture of worship in this passage. He is declaring, God, you are faithful. You will do everything you promised to do. And what is it that we should learn here? Lot chooses the things that are seen and finds them corrupting. Abraham looked and saw through the eyes of faith the things that are unseen, and he found great assurance and peace. Where are you looking for ultimate comfort today? Or better yet, when are you looking for ultimate comfort? C.S. Lewis says that if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking. Abraham believed the truth of God's word, and he was looking for that. The fullness of this promise was something Abram would never see in his own lifetime, and he understood that this guarantee pressed beyond this life and into the next. Hebrews 11 makes that abundantly clear. Yes, his offspring would physically come to inherit the land in a distant but more immediate fulfillment of this promise, but even that pointed toward a greater end-time fulfillment that would ultimately be realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And that will be realized by all Abraham's offspring. It will one day be realized by you and by me who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter presses this into the church who live on this side of the cross, and I'm going to put it on the screen as we close our time together. Listen to what he says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance 
that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then look at this note of worship and praise. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result, notice the future orientation of this church, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Future, listen, the salvation of your souls. Notice that it's all pointing forward. We worship not because of what we can see with our eyes, but in what we know to be true and can see by the eyes of faith. Ask yourself this question, am I more like Lot or like Abram? Who do I want to be more like? Will I reach for the world and get nothing of God or will I trust in God and inherit all the world? Renewing your faith, church, requires that you return to your faithful God, resist your foolish greed, and remember your future guarantee. At the end of the day, our greatest need is not to be like Abram or any other hero of the faith, but to be like Jesus, the hero of the faith. Amen? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so a great, such a great cloud of witnesses, Abram included, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Abram isn't the goal. Jesus is the goal. He's the prize. He is everything. May he be our greatest treasure and our greatest delight. May he be our soul-satisfying vision as we wait not for what is seen, but what is unseen and is ours already and not yet by faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that you would give us a renewed faith today. You are our faithful God. You are faithful to save us. You are faithful to continue to love us and to forgive us even when we've sinned. And Father, we pray that you would set our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter, the finisher of our faith. May we run after you, Jesus. May you be our greatest prize, our greatest treasure. May you be our only vision in this life and into the next. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.